book of Judges chapter 3 this morning. I, today is Compassion Sunday. We'll explain more what that means at the end of the study. And, and the study really isn't directly related to Compassion Sunday. <clears throat> it's indirectly related. I, I realized after the fact that there was another verse out of Judges 3 that would probably be perfect for Compassion Sunday, but I'd already done this study, so uh, this is what we're going to do. I do want to say, however... That there is a process, very simple process in Christianity by which we are called. And the first step in that process is simply the Lord wants to pave a way for us to come back to Him, for Him to enter in, to be back in relationship with us. That, that's A number one with the Father. He wants to be in relationship with us. And part of the process there is the sanctification of us. You see, God is perfect. God is light, the Bible tells us, and in Him is no darkness at all. Therefore, to be in His presence, we have got to be sanctified. We've got to be cleaned up. We've got to be pure. I've got to use, move this mic because it's right in Marilee's face, and that's bothering me. So, it's out of the way now. I see your smiling face. We've got to be cleaned up. So we come to the Lord. He cleans us up. But that's not the end of the process. And unfortunately, sometimes that's where we sit. We sit in the cleaning room. Happy to be cleansed. Wonderfully bathed in the, in the blood of Jesus. Boy, what a great place to be. And that's what often happens on Sundays, Wednesdays, in fellowship with other Christians. But there's a third part of the process that we're, we're not going to talk about in this particular study. But that's the process of being sent. The process of going. Getting out, doing what the Lord has enabled us to do. Ephesians 2.10 tells us that we have been created in Christ Jesus for good works which God prepared beforehand for us to do. So if all we're doing is coming in and getting fed and getting cleaned up, but we're not on to step three of the process, and that is taking the word into the world, serving in a lost world, caring for the least of these in the lost world, then we have stopped short of the whole thing. I tell you that because what we're going to talk about this morning is the middle part of the process, the sanctification, how God sanctifies us, how He cleans us up, and how important it is there are things we actually can do to engage in that process. But once that process begins and is rolling along in our lives, the motivation of being cleansed by the Lord and by Jesus' blood is to serve, is to get to work. We flip it around and we say we've got to work to get saved. No, you get saved that you might go to work for the Lord. And that's more what we'll get to at the end when we talk about Compassion International and, and, and what you personally can do in this world to serve. Many of you already are. And the kingdom is growing and blessed because of it. My encouragement is that we keep on doing that. But this morning, this morning in Judges chapter 3, we'll begin in verse 12. We read a very interesting story. We covered it on Wednesday night. And for those of you who are here Wednesday night and already heard some of this, uh, my apologies, although it's never, it's never a bad thing to kind of review a few things, although we will go a little bit deeper. We're going to get further in this morning, and I'll explain that in a moment as well. But let's begin in verse 12. If you have your Bibles open, Judges chapter 3, verse 12. Now the sons of Israel again did evil in the sight of the Lord. This will be repeated again and again throughout the book. So the Lord strengthened Eglon, the king of Moab, against Israel because they had done evil in the sight of the Lord. And he gathered to himself the sons of Ammon and Amalek, and he went and defeated Israel, and they possessed the city of the palm trees, Jericho. The sons of Israel served Eglon, the king of Moab, 18 years. Now this is in the land that was supposed to be theirs, that they had conquered 
that they had as an inheritance, but now they're serving Eglon, this rather large, obese king, as you will see. Verse 15. But when the sons of Israel cried to the Lord, the Lord raised up a deliverer for them, Ehud, the son of Gerah, the Benjamite, a left-handed man. And the sons of Israel sent tribute by him to Eglon, the king of Moab. Ehud made himself a sword which had two edges, a cubit in length, and he bound it on his right thigh under his cloak. He presented the tribute to Eglon, king of Moab. Now Eglon was a very fat man. Father, give us insight into this story. The Lord, I pray beyond insight that you would give us motivation. We often ask, Lord, we we quote the very scripture, would you help us to be doers of the word and not hearers only? That we might do as Ehud does in the story. That we might go out, that we might be sent. But Father, before we can be sent, we need to be sanctified and cleansed and consecrated. Even today, Lord, there, there may be secret sins that we are harboring in our lives. I pray that you will clean those out. I pray that you will reach in and convict us of those, not by guilt, Father, but by conviction. Would you reach into our hearts, our lives, internally, and draw out the sin that we might serve you more effectively, more efficiently, more powerfully, more wonderfully in this world, Lord. But for our time today, for the next few minutes, Holy Spirit, we ask your guidance, your teaching, and your insight that we might have the tools we need to do the business you've called us to. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, Judges chapter 3 details the deliverance of the first three deliverers of Israel during this dark time of Israel's history. The first three are Othniel. We know that Othniel had the Spirit of the Lord come upon him and he delivered Israel. Second was Ehud, who we look at this morning. He's the left-handed Benjamite. Third one is Shamgar, who was the farmer with a cattle prod. Very casual, commonplace men who the Lord used greatly. And we looked at these stories Wednesday, but again, I want this morning to spend a little more time with Ehud, whose story of deliverance begins where all these stories begin. In fact, every story throughout the book of Judges begins in the same place, with Israel sinning, Israel being crushed, and Israel crying out to the Lord. For in each and every case, deliverers are raised up because the people have sinned. Israel's place of of, of being crushed, their place of of being under a heavy weight, of, of being under dominance, of being ruled, is because of their own bad choices, because of their own sinful behavior. They have gotten themselves there. Now I want to say something about sin here to be sure we understand the dynamic of what sin is really about. In John Corson's application commentary, he writes the following. He says, sin is not bad because it's forbidden. Sin is forbidden because it's bad. Now our worldview tends to be the first line. Sin is bad because it's forbidden. That's the only reason it's bad, because God says don't do it. But I want to do it. And we get it backwards. The truth is sin is forbidden because it's bad. Because ultimately, it doesn't matter what the sin is, what the rebellion is against God, it doesn't matter. It all hurts us. It's all bad for us. And if you've ever been in the grips of sin in your life, and I'm assuming every one of us have, if you've ever been in that place where a particular sin would not let you go, you couldn't shake it no matter how hard you try, you realize how bad it is. And it may not have started out that way. It may have started out casual and fun and enjoyable. But it gets to that place 
where it is bad. And the Lord knows it. That's why He forbids sin. God is not a cosmic spoil sport to our fun. He's not a paternal party pooper. Sitting up there saying, I am going to take your fun from you. I know it's fun, I know it's enjoyable, but I don't want you to do it because I'm not joyful. Well, gang, that is not what the Bible says of the Lord. Nehemiah chapter 8 verse 10 says, Do not be grieved, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. The joy of the Lord. Psalm 511, Let all who take refuge in you, Lord, be glad. Let them ever sing for joy. And may you shelter them, that those who love your name may exalt in you. The word exalt means to leap, to jump. Sounds like a joyful word. John 15, 9, Jesus said, Just as the Father has loved me, and I also have loved you, abide in my love. He says, If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments, and abide in His love. And we hear the word commandment, or we hear the word law in Scripture, and our reaction tends to be joyless. Oh, Got to keep the commandments so Jesus will love me. No, we're missing the point. He goes on and says, These things I have spoken to you, my commands. I have spoken to you so that my joy may be in you. And so that your joy may be made full. In Galatians 5.22, Paul tells us the second fruit of the Spirit following love is joy. Joy. It is a joyful process to be in relationship with the Lord. It should fill us up with happiness and enthusiasm and blessedness. And Jude 24 says he is able to keep you from stumbling and to make you stand in the presence of his glory with great joy. See, that's the end picture. It's the picture for now, joy now in the Spirit, living for Jesus, joy in my life now. It's an oxymoron to be a depressed Christian. You understand that, that if you are in Christ, you are called to a place of joy. Now, I'm not saying you don't get down, and I'm not saying life isn't hard, and we don't all have our sorrows, but the walk in Christ is a walk of joy. And if most of your walk is spent depressed or down or in dark places, maybe you need to step back and look again at Jesus, because He invites you to a place of joy. It's that smile on your face that the world does not understand. That your friends look at you and they say, the circumstances in your life are not good. But to keep having that stupid smile on your face, I don't understand. That silly grin never seems to... What is the, what's the deal here? It's the joy of the Lord. Christianity is not a heavy weight. Man, Jesus got on the Pharisees for making their relationship with God a heaviness. Do you remember what he said to them? He said, you, you search throughout the world to make someone a Jew like you. And once you do, you make them twice a son of hell as yourselves. You tie up heavy burdens for the people and you weigh them down. And Jesus says, hey, my burden is light. It's joy that we are called to in Jesus Christ. And God doesn't want to take away our joy. As a matter of fact, He wants to increase your joy. And so He says, don't sin. Don't sin. Because sin steals your joy. Sin takes away from the hope, from the freedom that we have in Christ. That's why sin is a bad thing. That's why God forbids it, prohibits it, says don't do it. Because He knows it sucks the life out of your joy and my joy. James says about sin that each one of us is tempted when we're carried away and enticed by our own lust. And then lust, when it's conceived, it gives birth to sin. And when sin is accomplished, it brings forth death. Where is the joy in that? Death is not that joyful thing. 
Now, I look forward to what happens after death, but how many people really long for the moment of death? Or the process by which we come to death? It's not seen as joyful in the world. That's what sin does. It causes death. It might bring a thrill or a rush or a buzz. It might numb our senses to pain for a season. It might even be fun for the moment. But it ultimately and utterly will destroy you. That's what sin does. The Lord, on the other hand, says, I want you in this place of joy. The Father understands what our sin does and can do to us. And so... Nobody, nobody knows, by the way, the excruciating pain of our sin better than Jesus Christ. Russ shared two years ago, and my daughter's never forgotten it. She just recalled it again this week. She, Hannah will not use the word excruciating, Russ. She won't use it. She won't say, oh, I've had an excruciating day. Oh, I, I, just, I just stubbed my toe and the pain is excruciating. Why? Because Hannah understands, she learned from Russ, excruciating means having to do with the cross. That's where the word excruciating comes from. Pain like the cross. Hannah just said this last week, I have never had pain like the cross. So I can't use the word excruciating. Jesus knows pain. Jesus felt that excruciating pain of our sin on His shoulders at Calvary. He understands the gravity of sin. And He doesn't want it for us. He absorbed it for us. That we might walk in the joy of the Lord. This is where Israel is. As they tailspin once again into this cycle of judgment that we've talked about the last couple of weeks. That compromise leading to chaos. Leading to, to crushing oppressive weight of the enemy. Leading them to cry out to the Lord. And now they're crying out to the Lord. Once again this morning, Israel cries out. But I want you to notice something. Look at verse 12. It says, The sons of Israel again did evil in the sight of the Lord. So the Lord strengthened Eglon, the king of Moab, against Israel because they had done evil in the sight of the Lord. Did you catch that? The Lord strengthened Eglon. The Lord brought about this weight on Israel. I thought he was on Israel's side. In fact, I thought, Rick, you just said a few minutes ago that it was Israel's sin that caused them to, to be crushed by this king. It was. But we need to understand something about the Lord. Some things to jot down this morning. Number one, discipline precedes deliverance. Discipline precedes deliverance. Over in the book of Hebrews, chapter 12, and you can turn there or you can just listen as I read it. Hebrews chapter 12 and verse 7. It illuminates our understanding this way. He says, It is for discipline that you endure. God deals with you as with sons or daughters. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? But if you are without discipline, of which we have all become partakers, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Furthermore, we had earthly fathers to discipline us, and we respected them. Shall we not much rather be subject to the Father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time as seemed best to them, but He disciplines us for our good, so that we may share His holiness. Remember what I said earlier, so that we can share His holiness, so that we can enter into that place of His perfect light, so we can be in the presence of God. He will discipline us now. Verse 11 says, All discipline for the moment seems not to be joyful, but sorrowful. Yet, to those who have been trained by it, afterwards it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness. What is the peaceful fruit of righteousness? Gang, it's the joy of the Lord. 
Romans 14.17 says the kingdom of God is righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. And this is what a loving father does. He disciplines. He spanks. He punishes. He does what he needs to do to deter his children from wrong choices that will only hurt them. To keep us from stupid decisions. And so in our story, Father God raises up King Eglon. This Moabite king to discipline Israel. King Eglon is the paddle. He is the discipline for Israel. God raises him up. Now I've got to mention something about King Eglon. He's the equivalent of Jabba the Hutt. If you've seen Jabba in the Star Wars trilogy, or whatever it is now, how many movies they've got going... He is the one who is a great personification of King Eglon. King Eglon is the perfect name, by the way, for this gluttonous, gelatinous man. Eglon. He must have been egg-shaped. He was huge. It is thought by some that he had a, a waistline of 400 inches or more. Huge. He was grossly Jabba-like. So as you read and listen and watch Eglon in this story, just think of this guy who is massive. Maybe you saw in the news several years ago, there was a guy who they had to go in and literally take the wall out of his house so they could get him out and take him to the hospital. He couldn't even fit through a door. He couldn't even move. In fact, he was so overweight, he just laid there. And this is Eglon. This guy is massive. I tell you that on purpose. He's a heavyweight. And God uses this heavyweight to discipline Israel. Now, as I talked about last week, and the trouble spot I'm in may well be a result of my own sin. But the consequences of my sin are often used by the Lord to discipline me, to call me back to Him. And that's where Israel's at right now. Numbers 32.23 says, Be sure your sin will find you out. It'll hunt you down. It'll hound you. And the Lord will allow these consequences to be felt so that, like Israel, we will cry out to Him. Discipline often precedes deliverance. And sometimes in your life you might be asking, Lord, why aren't you delivering me? Why are you leaving me? Why am I still in this place? Possibly because God is trying to teach you something. Maybe because the Lord is saying, you haven't gotten it yet. And I'm going to pull you, the second you get it, I'm going to pull you out. But until you get it, I'm going to let you suffer the consequences of your own actions. I'm going to let you feel the pain of this until you understand what I'm doing. He's a good God. But He's a great Father who knows how to discipline His children. Well, verse 13 Going on, it tells us that he gathered to himself, this is Eglon, the sons of Ammon and Amalek, and he went and defeated Israel, and they possessed the city of the palm trees. And the kings of Israel served Eglon the king 18 years. But when the sons of Israel cried out to the Lord, the Lord raised up a deliverer for them. Number two, deliverance follows distress. Discipline precedes deliverance, but deliverance follows distress. After 18 years of domination by this fat cat of Moab, King Eglon, Israel finally cries out. They finally come to the place, enough is enough. And that's what we do when we get it. We say, I am sick of my sin. I'm tired of being stuck in the muck. I'm weary of this heavy dominance that is weighing down my life. And so I cry out, enough. God, deliver me. Forgive me, I repent. And this is wonderful. That's all it takes. 
from the moment Israel cries out to the moment Ehud is, is raised up it's one verse it's instantaneous that's all the Lord wants him to do cry out and I send a deliverer cry out come back to me and I am there instantaneously I've had conversations with people who say I've been, I've been away so long or I've been so far down or my sin is so dark and so deep I don't know if I can get there you don't have to the moment you cry out to the Lord you repent He is there where you are and He delivers and He pulls you out Psalm 3 verse 4 says I was crying out to the Lord with my voice and He answered me from His holy mountain and Psalm 68 verse 20 great verse God is to us as a God of deliverances and to God the Lord belong escapes from death and this is the message of Jesus this is the gospel He is the Deliverer. He is the one. Every Deliverer in some way, shape, or form throughout the book of Judges points us to Jesus who is the great Deliverer who responds the moment we cry out deliverance follows distress. Paul says in Romans 5 God demonstrates His own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners Christ died for us. You know what's interesting? Just a little side note here. In the case of Jesus Though deliverance follows distress, in the case of Jesus, deliverance actually came before distress. We were delivered, gang, 2,000 years before any of us in this room were born. The deliverance happened before we sinned. Before we, such is the grace of God that before we ever made a decision to sin or rebel, He had already provided the deliverance. So that even more so than Israel, you know, Ehud has to go in, he's got to do this work. This assassination. He's got to then lead Israel to fight back against Moab. It takes a little bit of time to get them out of the place that they're in. Not so with you and me. It's instantaneous because the deliverance happened 2,000 years ago at Calvary. We already have everything we need in Jesus Christ. It's amazing. Instantaneous forgiveness. Immediate deliverance. Well, going on, it says that Ehud was raised up He's the Benjamite. He's a left-handed man. Here comes the judge, the deliverer, Ehud, from the tribe of Benjamin. And that's significant. Number three, you might jot this down. The deliverer's deliberate design. The deliverer's deliberate design. Midweek Bible students, let me ask you this. What does the name of Benjamin, Benjamin, the tribe of Benjamin, what does the name Benjamin mean? Yes, son, son of my right hand, literally. Son of my right hand. It's funny that Ehud is a left-handed man. <laughs> from the tribe of Benjamin. He's from the tribe of the sons of the right hand, but he's a left-handed man. And in biblical times, gang, that's a curse. It's a curse. He's useless. He's no good. He's left-handed. He is not the son of the right hand, even though that's the tribe he's from. He's a left-handed guy, and there's a problem here. There's a curse. Because also in Bible times, the right hand is always the sign of authority and power and strength and inheritance. But Ehud is a southpaw. Ehud is left-handed. And in fact... I mentioned this on Wednesday that the text indicates not only was he left-handed, he may well have been handicapped. Why so? Because the phrase left-handed here literally means impeded on the right. Shut down on the right. Somehow unable to use the right. So, who knows? I, I had a, um, 
fantastic Bible teacher, pastor that I knew when I was growing up, named Tim Kelly. Tim sang at my wedding. Tim had polio, and his right hand and arm was completely shriveled. It hung there. It was useless. He couldn't use it at all. Perhaps that's what we're talking about with Ehud. That the son of my right hand can't even use his right hand because he was handicapped. Who knows exactly? We can't say for sure. But we do. We can wonder if, if Ehud, as he was growing up, ever questioned his state. Ever asked his creator, why am I this way? Why do you make me this way? I've got a design flaw. I'm the son of your right hand, but I'm left-handed. I say that to say, do you ever wonder if God made a mistake with you. I especially want to say this to the teenagers this morning. Any teenagers or preteens who are with us, listen, a lot of them come the second hour because you know they're still asleep right now. But the teenagers need to hear especially when they say, I'm too tall or I'm too short or I'm too slow or I've got some kind of design flaw. Let me tell you about design flaw. And I've shared this before, but it's perfect. I was born with a design flaw. I was born with a cleft lip and cleft palate. And every time I see pictures of, of children with cleft lips and cleft palates, I was reading a, a magazine article the other day talking about children in the third world who need help, who are born with that. And it's the lip not grown together and the palate completely wide apart and there's no bone there to grow. And here I am spending my life speaking. And I was born with that design flaw. And there were times as a child I wondered, God, why? Why do I? My, none of my friends have these scars. None of my friends have to keep going for surgery. None of my friends have to worry if, if their teeth are going to come in right or if they can get any teeth at all because there's no bone in certain spots. None of my friends deal with that. Why do I deal with that? And it absolutely cracks me up now. And it's, by the way, it's not an issue for me. We can talk about it. I don't get upset anymore. But it, now, I spend my life using my mouth. Some would say a little too much. I understand. <laughs> is it a design flaw or is it by God's design that He would be more glorified? That people can say, man, God works in spite of who we are, in spite of what we think or what we look like. God made us exactly as He wanted us to be so that we might serve Him as we are. As we are. So don't look around at other people. You look at yourself and say, okay, God, what do I have and how can I use it for you? Ehud had a left hand. Paul says, by the way, Ephesians 2.10, again, I quoted this earlier, we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. Ehud is left-handed. His strength is in his left hand, and it's important for our story. Read on. Verse 15, continuing, it says, the sons of Israel then sent tribute by him to Eglon, the king of Moab. Number four in your notes, I believe. Yeah, number four. The deliverance of duty. God wants to deliver the people, but the people are busy delivering their duty, their tribute. They're in the position of having to appease this large enemy. And it may have been tribute money, it could have been gifts, it could even have been food. In fact, it's likely it was food. Lots of food for King Eglon. Stack of Big Macs on a bed of fries. I don't know, but they were delivering to try to appease him. To keep him happy where he was. And I say this to say, gang, this is never the way to handle sin. Eglon in this story is a picture of sin. And we think, okay, if I just appease the sin, 
I can keep it where it's at. Gang, as long as we feed the enemy, we will not be delivered. Israel's in a place where they're appeasing Eglon, where they're sending tribute, whatever it is, they're sending it to him. And when we try to appease the appetite of our sin, our sin appetite, it just gets bigger. Someone says, I'm just going to smoke this last joint, or I'm just going to take one more drink, or one more touch. One look, just one last, one taste. I'm just going to watch this one movie. I'm going to do this one last thing. Well, I really need to do this. I understand I have a problem in this area, but I'm just going to do a little bit of it because that's helping me kind of work my way down. And it doesn't work. Appeasement only makes sin grow. It only makes sin get larger and heavier. And feeding Eglon just made him bigger and more of a problem. But what's interesting to me is while the rest of Israel is off gathering the duty to appease this, this heavy weight, Ehud, he heads to his garage and he begins sharpening a sword. Watch this, verse 16. Ehud made himself a sword which had two edges, a cubit in length, and he bound it on his right thigh under his cloak. What does the Bible tell us a double-edged sword signifies? It's the word. It's the word, and you all knew this. When you see a two-edged sword in the Bible, specifically called the two-edged sword, it is a picture. Remember, in the Old Testament there are pictures. In the New Testament are principles that relate. We see these Old Testament pictures, and then the Lord comes along and He defines and explains them, or shows us what they mean. And so Ehud goes and he makes this double-edged sword, and he puts it under his cloak. Hebrews 4.12 says, The Word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword. Paul says in Ephesians 6.17, To take up the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. This sword of Ehud, though a real sword, and though historically used and handled by him, is a picture, a portrait of the Word. And where does he put this double-edged sword? He puts it under his cloak. Which is interesting because Psalm 119.11 says, Your word I have hidden in my heart. I have it under my cloak, as it were, in my heart. I take it in. I hide it there. I keep it there. That's where it needs to be. And Ehud puts it under his cloak. He takes this double-edged sword, and by the way, he straps it to his right thigh. He straps it to his right thigh because when you draw a sword, you draw, draw across the body and pull it out. You don't draw down because you've got to pull your arm back. It's faster to draw across. And so Ehud has a strap to the right hand because he's a left-handed guy. Most people in the day would have a strap to the left thigh being mostly right-handed. And it's significant because as Ehud comes to King Eglon with his tribute, he wouldn't have been allowed to carry a sword on his right thigh. He probably would have been frisked by the secret servant agents of Eglon. They would have checked the right thigh. Okay, he's good. He can go in. And meanwhile, there that sword is hanging on the right where it would be unexpected and God uses this left-handed man to achieve his purposes. Ehud was exactly the way God prepared him to be. And so number five, if you're taking notes, number five, the deliverer delivers a pointed message. Verse 17. Now he presented the tribute to Eglon, the king of Moab, and Eglon was a very fat man. It came about when he had finished presenting the tribute that he went away, or or he sent away the people who had carried the tribute. But he himself turned back from the idols which were at Gilgal and said, I have a secret message for you, O king. And he said, Keep silence, King Eglon, because the message was for him alone. So all who attended him left him. And he came to him while he was sitting alone in the cool roof chamber. 
must have been a double reinforced roof. And Ehud said, I have a message from God for you. And he arose from his seat, Java, the hut, and rolls out of his seat and comes forward to receive this message from the Lord. Ehud stretched out his left hand, took the sword from his right thigh and thrust it into his belly. And the handle went in after the blade. And the fat closed over the blade for he did not draw the sword out of his belly and the refuse came out. Part of the reason why the Bible tells us that Ehud was such a fat man is to help us understand when that sword went in, it went all the way in. It doesn't come out the other side. The whole sword is inside this guy. And the fat closes over it. Ehud has to draw his hand out. And the sword is in. And it's totally gross. And I absolutely love this story. (laughs) It's so graphic. It says the sword went into his belly. And he did not draw it out. And it says, listen to this, it says the refuse came out. Let's say the blood came out. It said, no, you don't. No, you don't yet. Marianne said, we got him. No, you don't. It's not blood that's gushing out here. It's refuse. Let me give you some other translations. The King James says, the dirt came out. It's a nice way of saying what the Holman Christian Standard Version says, his insides came out. Or my favorite one, the New Living Translation says, his bowels emptied. <laughs> Why all these different translations? I mean, it's interesting because you can compare verses and look at different translations of the Bible. And we understand it was written in Hebrew, one language, but a lot of times when we translate to English, we can do two or three or four different translations. Why with this one? Well, the word refuse is a bit unclear. Basically, it's something grotesque that begins to empty from Eglon's gut. It's a gut-wrenching experience. Anyone have a Tums? I mean, this guy's in bad shape. It's coming out. No translation, again, listen, it's important. No translation says anything about blood rushing out or gushing out. This guy is so overweight, there's not even room for blood to come out. It's just gunk. It's just filth. It's just refuse. Leviticus, and listen, says Leviticus 17.11, the life of the flesh is in the blood. So so why are you being so graphic with this fat and refuse? Mainly for Marianne, because I know she appreciates this. But I want you to hear this carefully. It's not life that's flowing out. Because the life is in the blood. And I'm talking uh, metaphorically. I'm talking in a picture here. It's not life flowing out, although, yes, Eglon died. But it's gunk. It's filth. It's excrement. It's gross stuff that's coming out of Eglon all over as he gets out of there. When the sword goes in, the nasty, stinky, putrid, disgusting, fecal junk inside this corpulent, carnal king comes just slogging out. And I know it's gross, but I want it to be. It needs to be because that's what happens when the sword goes in. The filth comes out. When the sword of the Word of God, when it goes in, it cleans out the filth, the junk, the slime of sin that is in our lives. And I'm being so graphic and I'm being so gross because that's what sin is. Sin is filth. It's disgusting. It is awful. And the enemy does such a good job dressing it up and making it look nice. 
You've probably heard the old brownie story about the father talking to his children and, and the children saying, well, I can just watch, I can, I can watch a radar movie because I can handle a little cussing. I can handle a little, it's just, there's just a little bit of violence and it. it's not too much. And the dad says, okay, well, let's make some brownies and let's just put a little bit of dog poop in it. Would you eat that? That's sin. And here in this picture, it's a perfect picture of it. You want an instrument that will clean out the infected viral junk, garbage of the sin and rebellion in your life. You are holding it in your hands. It is called the Word of God. And it works. And it is effective. And it is sharp and two-edged. As Hebrews 4.12 tells us again, it's living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword. And piercing as far as the division of soul and spirit. I like that. Man, cut out the soul man in me. The earth man. The carnal man. Pierce that. Cut it out. I don't want that. I want the spirit. The spirit man. The the person you created me to be. Clean and holy and righteous before you. That's what I want to be. All this other junk. I don't want it in my life. It's the best virus software on the market. Is the word. It cleans it out. Like nothing can. The reason we get into the Word and spend so much time in the Word here as a fellowship is because the Word gets into you. If you will get into the Word, the Word will get into you. Mark my words. Psalm 119 verse 9 says, How can a young man keep his way pure? Indeed, in this world. Great question. Jacob, how do you keep your way pure? Going to Oak Harbor High School every day, surrounded by, I know, a lot of filth and a lot of sin. And Jim, by the way, I know it's the same way at Anacortes High School too. Same thing. How does a young man, how does a young woman, how does any of us, how do we keep our way pure? By keeping it according to your word. Psalm 119 verse 70, a great verse that parallels this perfectly. Their heart is covered with fat. But I delight to do your law. And if I'm not in the word... My insides will begin to become cholesterol covered. And the fat cells will stick together and will slow me down. And life will get heavy and sin will dominate and I will not experience the joy that I've been called to. But the Bible tells us something completely different about the Word. Not that it's heavy, not that it's hard, not that it's boring or difficult. As unfortunately as the attitude many people have in churches. When the sermon starts... And the pencils come out, the doodling begins, or, <laughs> or they're thinking about the plans for the week. I used to do that. Dang, I'd sit in churches and I'd take out my day timer. This is when I was a full-time youth pastor. And I'd start working on the week because, man, it was so dull. The knife was dull. The sword was dull. Let me tell you something. If the word is dull to you, it has more to do with the person bringing it than it does the word itself because the word is not dull. It's sharp. And it cuts and it gets in. And Psalm 19 verse 7, which was a turnaround passage in my life. This was the passage God gave to me when He told me, you're going to teach. I just want you to teach. Psalm 19 verse 7, the law of the Lord is perfect, restoring the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. I like that. That was encouraging to me. 
Making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The judgments of the Lord are true. They are righteous altogether. And the psalmist says they're more desirable than gold. Yes, they're much fine gold. And they're sweeter than honey. And the drippings of the honeycomb. We would visit my grandmother in Texas when I was a kid. And I loved it because she always had this homemade honey with the comb in it. And she'd cut it out. And it's probably gross today. It's mostly like wax. But as a kid, I loved it. She would take out a big chunk of that honeycomb and stick it on a plate. And I would just go at it as a kid. I understand what the psalmist is saying. It's sweeter than, than chewing on that honeycomb. Of that fresh, sweet honey. Moreover, even by them your servant is warned, and in keeping them there is great reward. In keeping what? The words of God. The law of the Lord. Now, I've got to tell you something else here, so if you've tuned out, tune back in and pay close attention to this. The word law, the word law here and throughout the Hebrew Scriptures is very interesting. We talked about Wednesday night. We've got to develop more of a Hebraic mindset, a more theocentered, God-centered mindset. We have a Greek mindset. When we see things through, through Greek philosophy and, and, and a really vastly impacted Western culture, we think Greek. We don't think Hebrew. But the Hebrew mindset being theocentric, listen, the word law, when we think of law in our Greek mindset, we think of rules and regulations. And that's not what the word law means. It's not even what the word law is. Every time you see the law translated in your Old Testament scriptures, and when it's translated in the New Testament, it's referring to the Old Testament scriptures. The word law, interesting, is, are you ready for this, Torah. Every time you see the word law, and I wish they would just translate it that way. I wish they would say the Torah of the Lord is perfect. Because it's not just the Ten Commandments. Or the book of Leviticus, or Deuteronomy, and sections of Exodus. It's not just the law given to Israel. It's the Torah that is perfect. What's the Torah? First five books of the Bible in Jewish thinking. And Torah, in the Hebrew, Torah literally means instruction, direction, teaching. It doesn't mean law, heavyweight. It's instruction. The instruction of the Lord. The guidance of the Lord. The teaching of the Lord is perfect. And we've seen this going all the way back to Genesis. We spent an entire year in Genesis alone with fantastic stories. Why? Because the law, the Torah, is perfect. Learning so much about the Lord and the way He thinks and how graceful He is and how much He loves. And looking at how He dealt with man through all those different stories. All the way back to Adam and Eve and their sin and God's grace. In covering them coming out of the garden. You know, that was the, the sacrifice, the first sacrifice. He covered them with animal skin, so there was an animal sacrifice as they came out of the garden. The law of the Lord, the Torah is perfect. And all scripture gang is implicated when we read that verse. How so? Because Torah comes from another Hebrew word. And I don't know exactly how this all works out. Someday maybe I'll take full on Hebrew course and I'll tell you, but Torah comes from another word, and that word is Yara. Yara in the Hebrew. The word Torah is directly related, comes from that. That's the root word of Torah is Yara, and it means both to teach and to flow like water. And that's what the word does. It flows like water. It's beautiful. It's a double-edged sword. It cuts. It goes right into the belly. It gets a hold of all our filth. It brings it out. The word goes in. The filth flows out of us, comes out of us, the dirt. But it's not only a two-edged sword. The word 
Yara, the teachings flow like water. Paul says in Ephesians 5.25, Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her so that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word. Yara, to flow like water. Rinsing us out. Oh, the sword will cut it loose, but then we get rinsed. I, I cut my hand wide open a few months back on a lamp in our house and I, I think I shared at the time it's one of those embarrassing things if I had cut it on a saw out on the garage that would have been cool you know I was working I, no I just tripped and nailed it on a lamp and I had to go to the emergency room and the first thing they did was they laid my hand out and this one yeah they laid my hand out in, in a little catch all thing you know a little bucket and they took the syringe and it really hurt to give me Novocaine to numb it there you go this will make you feel better you know but I understand why they did that because after they did it and my whole hand got numb and I'm looking down it was a gash huge gash there and you know bloody and everything and then the guy took water and swabs and just began to squirt it in and dig and rub and I was so glad at that point I had the Novocaine but we needed the water to get the rest of it out you see the sword the double edged sword can cut and the stuff can start to flow out but it's still going to stick and gunk the word does more than just cut the word also washes and cleans out and so the inside of that cut was completely clean in the same way the sin in my life it begins to flow as I get into the word but the word washes and cleanses as I stay in the word that's why we're in it so much gang the key to a clean heart the instrument that God uses to drive out and delete the refuse of sin in me is the Word. It's the Word. And Jesus even prayed in that high priestly prayer of John 17. He said, Sanctify them in the Word. Your Word is truth. Where I was talking about sanctification earlier. We come here, people, sometimes I get asked this, why do you, it's always about Bible teaching on Sundays and Wednesdays. Why don't you do something else? Why don't we spend more time doing other things? Because on Sundays and Wednesdays, gang, I have been called to this. This is what we will do. And I will not compromise on this. We've got to be in the Word because the Word sanctifies us. The Lord gives us His Word and cleans us. And we've got to have that sanctification if we are to go on to the sending work of the Lord, to the loving of other people, to the caring for, to the ministry that happens the second, well, it happens in here and it happens when we walk out the door. The Word. The Word goes in. The refuse comes out. And what are we left with? The joy of the Lord. We are left with nothing but the joy which is what he wants for us. These things, John 15, 11, again, I have spoken to you so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be made full. Eglon filled up on hamburgers. God wants you to fill up on the joy. But to fill up, you've got to be emptied out. And praise God, the Word does that. Don't you want that in your life? And aren't you just tired of the heavy weight of sin and junk? It just depresses us. It makes life heavy. My, my best encouragement to you is get into the Word and ask the Lord to clean you out. For the result, the result is joy. Let's pray together. Father, I thank you for your word and I praise you for your word. And I, Lord, I don't care if we sound like broken records here repeating this again and again. 
we recognize we have your word to cleanse us and wash us and, and cut away the fat of sin that is in us. And we praise you for that. And we recognize, Lord, we have your spirit working with the word to wash us clean, to speak to our hearts, and to teach us your ways. Your spirit, your word, your word, your spirit. Father, for these two absolutely amazing gifts, we thank you and we praise you this morning. And we ask, Father, that you will develop in us an ongoing hunger for your word that will not be satisfied any other way in our lives. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.